Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fiercely Spiritual Podcast. I'm your host, Sandra Ray. And today I have the lovely Alison Mendaika with us. She is a yoga and meditation instructor, a nutrition coach, a behavioral change coach, and a personal trainer. Um, Alison, you are so welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be with you today because there's so much about you that I want to chat about. Um, obviously, you are doing a number of different things, but you seem to weave that in. But firstly, I want to talk about before you came to be a yoga teacher, a meditation teacher, all the things that you're now doing. Who were you before all of that? Oof, um, well, what's interesting is I kind of tumbled into, like stumbled into a fitness path right away when I was in college. I danced all through my youth and in high school. And I, when I got to college, I, I really missed, I think, movement and what movement did probably for my mental health as much as for my body. So I went to a step aerobics class and I fell in love and they talked about how they had a teacher training and I just... I felt it felt like I had no choice but to like lean into this. So it was actually my fitness mentor who gently nudged me towards taking a yoga training. And I had never taken a yoga class before stepping into my yoga teacher training, which looking back now sounds um, wild. <laughs> and, uh, I feel like I've learned a lot along that space, but um, so that, you I mean, you started yeah. the teacher training, never went to yoga class. You're just like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. Never. Yeah. Yeah. I, love that. I mean, <laughs> looking back, I think that's an interesting, um, I don't know that I would have wanted to take yoga from me as a very new instructor, having probably the same amount of experience as students, but it, it's been an interesting um, learning and unlearning along the way. And it's brought me a lot of um, humility and I, I hope like an equal amount of wisdom, but it's, it's a funny path to look back on. Um, do you have any, do, do you ever have any regrets when you started doing it? Were you like, what have I got myself into? Um, I didn't know it would be like this or anything like that come up for you. It almost felt like I just, I can't, I cannot actually imagine my life without taking that path because several years later I was teaching yoga and I was personal training and I was running my own business, um, in Chicago. And I just had this pull to, to go back to the yoga space. Like I felt like I was helping people transform their bodies and I was, I had a pretty successful, um, outdoor boot camp and yoga business as well. But I just felt this pull back into the spiritual and the, the philosophical aspects of yoga that I, I felt like I was aching for. So I've moved myself to um, Boulder, Colorado, and I went to a Buddhist-inspired university for grad school. And that's actually where I met my husband. And now I just, so I feel like yoga and meditation like brought me into the life that I have now that I I, I yearned for so deeply to meet somebody who kind of could match the spiritual um, curiosity as well as have just a really fun life with. And I feel like that's what I have now. And now I have two kids and I couldn't imagine spending this pandemic with anybody else. <laughs> so Brilliant. yeah, it's a journey. And um, just as an aside, um, how long did you live in Boulder, Colorado for? 
Uh, four years. Oh, wow. I, literally the other day, my husband, um, he was talking about uh, um, Colorado and um, I think it was like skiing or something he was watching and he mountain bikes and we used to ski before the kids came along but um I started recently mountain biking and uh he was like would it be great to live somewhere where you could like mountain bike and ski because we don't get snow here really at all so um I was like I know they're so lucky over there <laughs> but uh, yeah yeah I'd say it's a lovely place to live oh it was it was just beautiful just gorgeous so yeah. I know that along your journey, you had some struggles, um, even though you were a fitness instructor. Um, at what point were you kind of struggling with your weight? Um, because I know that was coming up for you. Yeah. So I think from the outside looking in, it, it might not have, it's hard to know, but it might not have appeared to other people I was struggling with my weight, but for a decade. I mean, I feel like since... I kind of hit puberty and went through high school and was dancing alongside of very petite girls. And I was a regular sized person. Um, so I had a lot of, it's impossible not to compare your body to other people when your favorite pastime is, has to do with looking in a mirror. Um, so I feel like since I was 15 until I was about 27, I think I spent those 12 years, always believing I had at least five pounds to lose, if not more. Um, when I got towards the end of college and through all of my early twenties, I think I'd lost and gained the same 30 pounds over and over. I've tried every, oh, every cleanse, every detox. Um, I, you know, and I, the whole time I thought I was doing it in a healthy way. And I think in a way I was, but now looking back, I think two big things um, kept me from living in the body that I really wanted. And one was body shame. And the other side of that is, you know, self-acceptance. And the other was the stress and inflammation that I kept kind of um, creating in my body because I would do these wild detoxes and, um, you know, extreme exercise. And then I want to like, let my hair down and I would go out with my friends on the weekend and drink and go to brunch. And then on Monday morning, I would go back into, I've got to drink, you know, my green smoothie and do all the right things. So I would say it was the better part of a decade where I was on that huge roller coaster, which now I can relate to a lot of my, I mean, most of the women I meet and I work with have been through something similar, but it's hard to look back and remember those days. Yeah. And I think, well, what it sounds like you weren't overweight. You just didn't like your body the way it was and the weight that you were at. Would that be right? Yeah. I think that there was, there was an extreme moment and it was right at the end of college and the beginning of like trying to figure out what an adult is at 22, but I went from, um, being a size two in, I guess in, in us pant sizes, I should say, I went from being like a size 10 to a size two to a size 14 in a nine month period. So it was just, I mean, it was an extraordinary swing for a number of different reasons, but I think that that was probably again, from the outside looking in that 
nine month period, I could understand somebody thinking what's going on there. But other than that, yeah, my, my weight appeared to stay fairly even, but internally I knew I was yo-yoing a lot. I knew that there was, um, there was just a lot of discomfort and dis-ease and almost like this obsession over what can I do to be better, to get better, to look better, to even to feel better. And I think that's something that's, it's not really spoken about that much. Obviously, um, you know, we speak about people who are obese and um, obviously there's a huge amount of support in helping those people, but the people who seem to be at the right weight, um, I don't know if there is as much support for their struggles. Um, Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. And even when I was the tiny size two and my body fat percentage was low, I remember feeling so defensive in that how how I felt like I had to be on the defense for people saying like you're too thin or you're too muscular or something. Like it almost felt harder internally in that I didn't feel connected to anybody because I still felt like there was a fight happening. Like I still felt felt at war with something because I think that when we're overweight or even in body shame, like uncomfortable with where we are, we're at war against ourselves. And once I arrived at this like goal place, I was all of a sudden at war with the rest of the world (laughs) because I hadn't, oh, I, I just hadn't healed the body image and body shame stuff in me and the underlying kind of those root causes. That's so interesting. And I was going to actually touch on that, but I just want to mention, I did say a moment ago, the right weight. I just want to say there's no right or wrong weight. Right. Yeah. right. Um, so I just want to make that clear. Um, but so I think what, what it sounds like is that your struggles this the weight thing was like a symptom of maybe a lack of self-love or self-worth would that be right yeah and it feels almost I mean even now it feels embarrassed like there's an there's an element of embarrassment to admit that um I think because I grew up feeling fairly confident I was I mean like any teenager or like any woman I had had insecurities I felt like fairly comfortable in my own shoes, but probably not in my own whole body. So I, yeah, I think it was, it was like, um, what I see from a a lot of my clients and a lot of the healing that we do now is this, this underlying belief that if I love myself, that means that I'm just one of my clients actually said, I'm just going to be fat and happy. Or if I love myself, then I'll just let myself go. And so it's like, if I accept myself for who I am, that I'm never going to be at this goal weight, you know, in quotations, because I won't work to get there. And it's like, oh my goodness, the, op- the opposite is true. <laughs> Once we love ourselves, we, we're just able to, it feels more natural to make the decisions that, that otherwise feel like this struggle in this war. And what's coming up as well is that when society is like pumping out these images of um, these women who are, you know, airbrushed and like a certain size and weight. And it's saying, this is what you need to look like. This is how you should be. And obviously with yourself, you were doing the dance classes and all these, you know, petite girls um, and everybody is different. Everybody has 
you know, a different body type, we don't conform to the same shapes and the same things. So of course, we're like, there's this, um, there's this message that young girls are fed, that you have to be this way when I think it's changing now. But that was so prevalent, um, certainly when you were probably a teenager. Yeah. And I think the interesting shift when we become adults is then, you know, if women choose to have children, all of a sudden there's this postpartum, like before and after baby thing that happens. And I, I participated in this with my first son. And in that I showed, you know, me at six weeks postpartum and 14 weeks postpartum. And my messages were always, you know, I'm taking care of myself. I'm this is, this is a journey for me. It's not to say that you should look a certain way, but still, when I look back at those, when we put images next to each other, where one is heavier, one image is a person who weighs more and the other is a person who weighs less. The person who weighs less is always smiling more in those pictures on social media. And those, you know, I think it's just, it's like, it's like we repeat this, this teenage comparison thing again, once we become mothers. And it's so, it's so dangerous, I think, because a lot of times as new parents, and I was, my son was three months old when COVID hit, like we, we kind of um, become more isolated and in, in our own minds. And we just have to be in our, in our own homes more. So the scroll starts to happen. And when we are scrolling, there's so much of the subconscious mind that's absorbing things that we don't even notice, or that's too fast for us to consciously think about, but it, it, it deepens that, you know, scarring or that, that dis-ease with ourselves, unless we, unless we hold up a, a mirror to it and see what, see what is actually happening. Yeah. I, I used to um, think I'd love to put a post up where like me before eating a meal and me after eating a meal <laughs> and yes. recently I actually saw somebody it just popped up for some reason and it was like uh, me now me 10 minutes later and like it's so funny because I remember years ago reading that some of those um you know curated before and after photos are literally taken you know 10 minutes apart and yeah. there's like there's there's no yeah. transformation. It's just like a bit of makeup and sucking. And it's ridiculous. Yes, yes. yes. And so, it's, it's almost impossible not to compare yourself to those, even when you know logically that it, it can't. You you don't know the whole story through pictures. Exactly. Um. So for you, when you were going through all this what like how what helped you to break through that struggle what was the missing link for you so in hindsight it was um it was almost the same as meeting my husband and and I feel like um you and, and your audience will understand this more than um maybe just the average person in that I remember writing down everything that I wanted in a partner. Um, I've, I did it three different times and each time, one, once I was in high school and I found that person and I realized that there were elements missing and I did it another time and I found that person, I thought he was my guy, wasn't. And 
then I did it a third time, forgot all about it. And I pulled it out one day once, um, Joe and I, my husband were engaged and I was like, I was just blown away. He was everything except that he doesn't play the guitar, but I'm holding out. I hope that one of my children will, but it was, you know, it was a clear desire, a clear vision, and then a complete letting go and, and living my life and loving my life. And it feels so similar, although I'm sure that there were many more steps that I took, but what happened was I decided to, um, I was, I was coming to the end of my grad school journey, wondering what am I going to do now? Like my whole business had been built in Chicago. I was living in Boulder and I decided to run, um, like a seven day clean eating challenge, which as I was creating it, it kind of morphed into this mindfulness, um, eating experience where I refused to say, do not eat any of this, like eat this, not that, or I gave guidelines, but it was, a, it just morphed into this, like, let's be aware how we feel when we eat food. And I don't know why, but I had never thought to do that before. <laughs> just to think about what am I feeling before I sit down to eat or before I reach for the handful of sugar or before I have my third cup of lukewarm coffee. So coaching these people through that kind of, it, it just shifted it made me notice so many different patterns in this, in this seven day journey. And from there, I decided just not to stop. So I decided to just keep noticing how I was feeling and have really gentle guidelines with myself. And over about three months, I, I lost, I lost like those 30 pounds that I kept losing again and again, but then they just stayed off and it feels you know, it's, it's a hard thing to describe, but it, it just felt like I, I let the weight go. It felt, feels like I let the struggle go that I kind of released this war with myself. And there, there were lots of like awakenings and tears and a lot of different things in between, but it was like a letting go and, um, an allowing, it's funny because when you said I let the weight go, two words popped into my head and it was emotional weight. And the mm -hmm. fact that you were saying that, you know, there was that shedding of tears and emotions that, you know, obviously the practice was helping you to be mindful. But I think it, we well, I don't know if in your work, but I know that um, our emotions do weigh us down, not just as in, oh, it, we're, we say we're carrying a heavy burden, but I think physically our waistline start to expand when we're holding on to that emotional energy. And we often don't realize that. Have you experienced that? Absolutely. I, I think I noticed it when I was really young as a personal trainer, and I heard this in a yoga training, but that our tissues hold our issues. Because what I noticed was that when people started moving and it didn't matter who they were, whether they were just like a really successful businessman or a doctor or um, a woman who was in grad school, like when they started working out when during our training sessions, I felt like all of a sudden I became their like therapist in, in that they, they just, it was their emotions came out. <laughs> And yes, that is absolutely, I think because I had been focusing so much on um, helping other people feel good in their bodies, I just never completely understood how, 
how to do it in mine. And for me, it was less doing and it was more being, and it was more just letting, just letting myself sit with the tough stuff, like sit with the emotions. And luckily that's, I mean, in grad school, every semester we had a class that was where we were forced to sit in meditation. And I say forced because it's the hardest thing I've ever done other than maybe childbirth, but it, it, it's just hard. It takes a, a certain kind of endurance that you never expect, but yeah, it's what helped me release the emotional weight. Yeah. So I want to go into a few things here. Um, firstly, uh, just when you're talking about, um, you know, the mindful kind of eating and slowing down and just being with what you're eating. Um, it reminded me, my son came home from school the other day and he was saying he didn't get a chance to finish his lunch. And he's like, you know, I, I just eat really slowly. And like, sometimes I don't have time to finish. And I was like, it's okay. And I was like, it's better than like just gobbling the food. Down. He's like, yeah, everybody just eats so fast. They just like, you know, eat like and I was like laughing because um I would be like that I would eat quite slowly and be mindful of what I'm eating so it's lovely to hear that um the other thing I want to mention I remember years ago um studying mindfulness and there was a thing that came up called three strikes and it was saying that when you want to reach for that piece of chocolate or um even if you want to like scratch that itch so to have three strikes. So the first time to notice it, but not react to it. The second time you notice it, that urge to reach for the chocolate, whatever it is, you observe yourself, but you don't react the second time. And the third time you're allowed to take that piece of chocolate. You, if you choose to, um, you're also allowed to choose not to, but if you choose to have it, then you choose to eat it mindfully knowing that that's the choice that you've made so I think so often we just like run to the cupboard grab the chocolate shove it in our mouth and then like keep rushing and going on with the day yeah it's almost like we're trying to be the parent and the child in the situations too like quick eat it before mom sees but we we are the it's so it confuses you know the nervous system too um I I I love that the three strikes because what I recommend I won't talk to any of my clients about what to eat until they journal for just at least three days. Um, the I say that why they're eating, but the answer to the things of before they take a handful of anything or before they sit down to a meal, what am I feeling? What do I want? And what do I need? And usually the answers start out very literal. Like I'm feeling hungry. I need, or I want some food. I need some energy. And then it's, it's beautiful when they do it. It's one of the hardest things I think for people to do. Cause again, it gets to the emotional stuff, but it evolves into like, I'm feeling really, really sad. Like I'm feeling a lot of grief for what I can't do now that I used to be able to do because of COVID, for example. And I really need just like a hug from a human but what I want is this chocolate. <laughs> because and it just, feels good. It feels similar to that hug. Yes. And I think the, the reason it's hard is because people think if I see that I'm reaching for chocolate out of sadness, I'm not going to be allowed to have it or I'll be a bad person. And there are two truths. One is that every human, if they have the resources to emotional eat in that they have, you know, the, the money and the food in front of them, they will do it if they're, if they're feeling in a heightened stress state. 
if that is their source of soothing. But the other truth is, is that once you see like, oh, I'm feeling so sad and I want this chocolate, it has allowed you to slow down enough to maybe actually enjoy the chocolate instead of gobble the chocolate and then feel shame about it. Like maybe actually get some sort of, you know, feel like the dopamine hit and just feel the chocolate in your mouth, you know, all the textures. And then it ha- it might have the opportunity to make them feel a little bit better. And I think that's kind of the gray area where we've we've been taught to believe that emotional eating is a terrible thing to do, even though most people do it at some point. And I don't know that it's, I think unconscious emotional eating can be really harmful. But when we get together for holidays with our families, you know, that is in a sense like joyful emotional eating, depending on who your family is. But, <laughs> you know, or, you know, when we celebrate somebody's birthday, you know, we're having sweet things or we have comfort foods at certain gatherings. And that is a form of emotional eating. And I don't know that, you know, with, when it comes to like nutrition and health, that any one thing is bad. I do think that when we are aware of things though, that we're just able to approach all of it with, with a much more um, self-compassionate and holistic view instead of thinking like, this is bad. This is good. I can do this. I can't do this because we will always want to do what we have told ourselves is forbidden because it's that much more attractive. And it's funny because going back to my kids, I always, um, for years, I didn't want to reward them with food. Um, Mm -hmm. Like the temptation is if they do something that you want to do, say, oh, great, you know, here's some chocolate or here's something that they like. And, um, you know, it got to the point where they like I never gave them like jellies or chocolate or anything like that and when they did get it they were like it's here we have to have it and like it was almost like you know this obsession with this I was like okay everything in moderation um but I also I find that there are times when it's okay to maybe reward like we have um, a lovely uh, walk up the mountains we hike up with them and I say okay well if we get to this point you can have a bit of chocolate or something because you've done so good which only happens occasionally but um, it, it sometimes we think it has to be all or nothing and it's uh, it's so often not the case. Yeah and it's so hard to be a parent and so hard to be human because really the intention is there. And then it's like, wow, I, there's this whole other side that I didn't pull other like natural consequence. I didn't see coming. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, I was getting like messages from my guides to give up refined sugar. And I really struggled with it. I was like, no, I don't want to give it up. And I decided, okay, I'll do a month where I give it up. Now, the one stipulation I had was that I would keep eating like dark chocolate, like 80% or over. I was like, I have Mm. to have something. (laughs) So I did it for a month. And then at the end of the month, I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to eating like the biscuits and this stuff. And it wasn't about weight at all. Um, For me, it was more so about purifying my energy. Um, But after I went back to it, I started getting the messages again to, you know, give up refined sugar. So I was like, okay, I'll do it for a year. So I did it for a year. And 
then now I was still eating the like fruits um I was eating natural sugars um but I just wasn't eating all the processed and refined sugars um I think I did I remember uh eating like ketchup tomato ketchup which I know has sugar in it so it wasn't totally um but now these days if I want to I'll have the biscuit but it's not very often um just because I know that it brings my energy down. Um, But what my point was is that I think often sometimes when we do eliminate these things, um, we feel better in ourselves. It's not just about the weight. We have more energy. Our minds are clearer. um, We feel more like vitality. I don't know if you notice that in your practice. Oh, absolutely. I remember... um just deciding similarly deciding I wasn't going to have um we live near a really a a wonderful bakery that makes everything from scratch but it had gotten to the point where we were like walking over there a little too often and I wanted to cut back and I decided I was just gonna not snack between meals like just be more mindful about when I'm reaching for things and then drink more water and I remember saying to my husband I don't know what I was doing before drinking all this water every day. Cause I feel alive. Like I just feel absolutely alive. Yeah. So I think whenever we like decide to do a thing or to, um, take a break from a thing, it is, it's, it's interesting how, um, how often like the texture of life gets more rich. And our fear is that, that we'll lose something that we'll have like that fear of missing out that that we won't be able to enjoy life. And the truth is, is that when something like sugar or alcohol, or even like people who almost like over, over exercise, like rely on something when there's any, like just baseline um, addiction, when we're able to free ourselves even a little bit for a week from that, it's actually like, we, we are more free. But for some reason, our brains, I like to say our inner mean girl says, oh, no, like then then you'll be in chains if you give up this thing. But the, it, the opposite is true. That's so true. And what I find as well, if I tell myself I can't have something, then I'll find myself wanting it. Whereas if I'm like, I can have it how I want if I'm mindful about it and knowing actually, yeah, I'm feeling a bit sad, but yeah, I know that I still want the chocolate or, you know, just know the reasons behind it. But you mentioned about water. And I think most people think that they know the difference between being hungry and being thirsty. And often our mind or our bodies are craving hydration, but we feel hungry. We don't actually realize that we need to hydrate. Um, so that's something I always do if I find myself thinking, oh, I need to go to the cupboard to get some chocolate or something. And I'll say, OK, I'll have a glass of water first and then see how I feel. And if I still want it, then I'll have it, but I'll hydrate first. Um, and often that will be what my body needed. Yeah. Yeah. That that's surprising too. And I remember, um, when I worked with a nutritionist back when I was in Chicago, I was saying like, before I teach certain classes, I just feel like I need like a cup of coffee or I feel like I need a snack. So this is, I feel like the, the regimen that she had suggested, I said, I don't know if I can do this. And she said, why do you think you need a snack before teaching that class? And as I like started to examine that again, it's embarrassing to say so, but I, I thought if I don't have this energy from food, from something external, 
then I'm not going to be as good of an instructor for this particular like high energy class. It's like, wow, that it's, it's so interesting. Cause again, when I have my clients ask those questions, we often think I was just hungry. Like I'm just hungry. I need, I need this. And food just does so much more for us than gives us energy. Like it, it, it hits different receptors in our brain. It helps to soothe stress. It does so many other things that we have. If, if there's a de- desire to make a change, we've got to be able to look at that as well. Absolutely. And I know that you have four pillars to the work that you do. Can you take us through them and how they work? Sure. I like to think of these as like um, sneaky meditation and yoga for people who either love meditation and yoga or don't want to do it at all, because it, it is that it's that felt sense of awareness where you're able to be in your body and be in the space between your ears and your mind without actually like sitting on a meditation cushion. So the four pillars of wellness that I talk about are how we think, how we move, how we nourish our bodies and how we rest. So it's everybody starts in a different place. And it's usually, I recommend starting in the place that you gravitate towards most. And mine has always been movement. I feel like for me, movement is like, is the gateway to transformation and that it helps. Even when I don't think it will, it helps with my mood. It helps me to move through my, you know, emotional stuckness. So I talk about movement rather than like working out or exercise, because we tend to have a very limited idea of what that could be like this this kind of box we keep exercising where we have to put on our yoga leggings and a top. And, and instead I like to think of movement as just anything that brings you joy and gets your body moving in a different way than it is in the moment. Um, and what I teach is to have a movement, you could say rhythm or routine where you find joy or peace before, during, and after. So a way to do this is to have just a positive thing you're saying to yourself. So maybe an affirmation or something like a course in miracles is sitting in front of me. So maybe just opening up a book that inspires you and reading a line and just letting that kind of soak in. And this can take just 10 to 30 seconds. And then as you're moving, as you're, as you're exercising, repeating this thing to yourself. So repeating this one sentence thing, because when you're moving with breath, your brain is in a state that's able to absorb knowledge and, and kind of almost like, I think of it as like hooking in the memory so much more than when you're just sitting. And that's why um, a lot of, you know, ancient religions, when they're learning, they rock because we can learn better when we're moving. And then just after it's usually that after like we move or we exercise, we think, oh, why don't I always like, why don't I do this every day? Because the endorphins has, have hit. But again, just allowing for a moment, 30 seconds, 10 seconds, whatever you have to just breathe and to notice what you feel so that the next time you're thinking, oh, I have a little bit of time. Like, should I move or should I just sit and watch Netflix? <laughs> You've almost like baked in that energy. And baked in that memory of this, this feels good and it brings me joy or it brings me peace. It brings me what I need. So the movement, uh, 
Yeah, go on. Oh, I was just going to go on to the next thing, but I'll try to be briefer with the next three. So go ahead. <laughs> but no, I was just going to ask the movement with the affirmations or mantras. Um, so it doesn't have to be the yoga necessarily. Can it be no. dance or any type yes. of movement? Okay. Brilliant. Dance, yeah. Um, you know, a walk outside, a run outside. I even teach new moms, like just circuits of time, kind of pockets of time routines that they can do in like five minutes sets throughout their day, but with, but, but incorporating that single mantra throughout the day. So yeah, it can be any sort of movement because not, I think yoga is wonderful. It's my, it's the love of my life, but it's not the love of everybody's life. So anything that allows for more space in your body and for your heart to get, to rise just enough to, to create that positive natural endorphin response. I remember years ago seeing um, a post, it was a yoga teacher saying that every time she boils the kettle to make a cup of tea, she uses that time to do handstands. And I do the same. I don't necessarily do handstands all the time, but um, I will, you know, do some stretches while the kettle is boiling. And it's just that trigger for me to move and to stretch in what way feels good for my body. And I love having those tr triggers during the day where it's like, oh, the kettle's boiling, time to move. <laughs> yeah, almost like that Pavlovian response, which we, I think we have all over the place without knowing it so to have like a conscious one that's beautiful yeah it's just a nice reminder and sometimes um you know I'll be busy while it's boiling you know making lunches or something like that and I won't get to do it so and I don't beat myself up I just you know if it's a moment where I find myself standing waiting for it I'm like okay I can move um so you have these four pillars and the movement one I'm really interested in because um for me like I love to meditate and you were saying before about meditating being one of the hardest things <laughs> that you've ever had to do and I'm sorry I'm not laughing at you I just find that um when people say that they find meditation hard I totally understand because there's days where I sit down and my mind is just constantly going but the majority of the time I'll be like looking at my watch thinking, okay, can I meditate? Can I grab a few minutes to meditate? Like I will like stop, drop and meditate <laughs> any time of the day. Um, but the movement part, I like recently, I've been doing more walking meditations and um, I find that the movement, it, it does help sometimes to allow my mind to let go and you know, people associate meditation with sitting meditation and it doesn't have to be that way. You can do walking meditation. You can meditate, as you say, while you're doing, you know, conscious um, movement, yoga or dancing or anything else, whatever works for you. So if somebody wants to start, if, um, you know, can you recommend a mantra or an affirmation to start with? So I love, this kind of has two parts, but I love I am in that it could be so this it's I guess these are two different ones but one could be I am and then just the first thing that comes to mind so I am enough I am strong even noticing like I am scared and and being able to explore that a little bit more but just letting your deeper self higher self however you want to see it your that, that part of you that breathes, 
be able to answer that and then just to breathe in I am and breathe out that fill in the blank. And the second is just I am, to let I am be a complete sentence because again, as women, as mothers, we wear so many hats. We wear so much um, of everybody else's stuff on our shoulders. So to shed that even for a five minute, five minutes of the walk and to just breathe in I, to breathe out am, am, and to let that be the end of the sentence. That's one of my favorite. I feel like that is one of the most freeing, <laughs> freeing um, statements I can give myself. It's so true. And it's so beautiful. Um, during the summer, I started jogging and I'd tried jogging before, but I had like um, a problem with my knee. But this time um, I was fine. And as I was going through, you know, each day and adding kind of extra minutes to it, I'd find my mind would start, you know, give me all the reasons not to do it. It'd be like, I can't do this. This is retired. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling tired. So I did what you were saying. I started saying I am and just seeing what came up and, you know, I am powerful. I am energized. I am. And going yes. through the run and like that got me through to the end of the time that I was doing. And I found that when I started off, if I started off in that way, saying I am powerful or I am energized, I had so much energy to do it rather than if I started off unconsciously saying all the things like, oh, I can't do this. This is really hard. And my energy levels would just go drop like so down. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting how just the way we speak to ourselves can have such a profound effect on our physical energy as well. Oh, absolutely. And it matters. It matters so deeply. And it's um, in her book, um, Sonia Renee Taylor's book, Your Body is Not an Apology. She talks about a lot about body shame and about how we have to, it's like relearning or learning for the first time a new language. So she's like, if you've spoken English your whole life and want to learn French, you can't just you know, say what a sentence in French and think that you're going to stop thinking in English and speaking in English and dreaming in English. Like you need, you need the repetition and you need the gentle reminders over and over again. And I, I feel like it's the same. It's, it's exactly true for, for body shame and for just the way that we critique ourselves, because if we're waking up in the morning thinking, Oh, I should have gotten up before my alarm oh, I should be working out. I should eat better. Having at least five minutes of where we're saying I am powerful. Like that is, that is game changing. And to be able to do that every day at some point in the day, not to add another should to our list, but just to have this internal lift is, is so powerful and so necessary. So I know that you help women who are struggling in these areas with you know, overwhelm or with, is it self-image that you work with as well? Or, you know, um, how do you help people? Yeah, I don't think that anybody ever comes to me and says I have a self-image problem, but usually what I hear is um, I want to feel better. I want to be able to keep up with my kids or with my work. And it's like always that last goal that they talk about is like, I want to lose weight, but I don't want to it to be about the weight. <laughs> so I, I want to, I want to be smaller. I want to shrink in some way, but I'm aware that, that, that thought and that language and that goal have been hard on me. 
Um, so with every, when I work with people individually, I, you know, cater to them, but in the breakthrough method that I created so that more women could experience, um, experience this kind of against the grain shift in without needing like to hire a personal trainer or a nutrition coach. We start with thinking the way that we think in the way that we're goal setting. So I start with kind of going at it from a backwards way in thinking of where we have been, because oftentimes we just don't even want to think of the past. We don't want to think of all the ways that we have failed in, in our minds, at least. And we also don't, people don't want to acknowledge where they are in this moment, especially if they've been struggling with yo-yo dieting for a long time or struggling just to find their ground again. So being able to acknowledge what, what we've been through and where we are right now, not only helps us create like more realistic goals, but also more inspired goals in a far, it's just a far more gentle way. Because if we're saying to ourselves, gosh, I never have the willpower. I'm never motivated enough without seeing like, oh, it's the 12th month of a pandemic where I haven't been able to get the physical in, in home support that I need to take care of my children. For example, like, of course I haven't been as active as I have before, not to use it as an excuse necessarily, but just to, to almost like lay out all the facts on the table so we can see what makes sense to tweak moving forward. Yeah, and I love that you use the word gentle. I can sense that like feminine energy that you bring into it. And I think that's what, what's missing. So many like fitness programs or um, weight loss programs, they're quite aggressive and they involve some sort of like bodily punishment, whether it's through exercise or through, you know, deprivation or some sort. And it sounds like your approach is much more holistic, much more mindful, much more um, loving. And obviously it has the, it, it works as well. So it's, um, uh, it's wonderful, the work that you're doing. Mm, I, I appreciate that. I, I think the one, um, the one thing that I can always hear the, like the internal fight against is again, the self-love. Like if I love myself, then what could possibly happen? And I think the fear there is almost everything that we've been taught about diet and exercise is like, go harder, go home, do this, or, or, you know, you're on the bandwagon or you're off. And it's like, it's like that inner mean girl is so terrified of the unknown. Like if we, if we step out of our comfort zone and unfortunately the comfort zone is the diet is diet culture is fitness culture. If we step out of that, then what it's like, then we're in the wild <laughs> unknown, but that's, I mean, that's where the magic happens when you start trusting yourself and, and listening to your intuition and being present with the emotions, even when they're not the, you know, the joyful, like my life is transforming emotions when we're able to be with our sadness and our, our shame, our, our, what we claim our darker emotions. It's, it's, I like that saying the only way out is through, like you, 
you can only hide emotions for so long. You can only numb emotions for so long. They, they're like children where they will make themselves known <laughs> in any possible way. So yeah, I, it's gentle sounds scary to some people, self-compassion. It's terrifying to some people, um, but it's, it's where the magic is. It really is where the magic is. And I think when you can face those aspects of yourself that you fear, then you become so powerful because you're not running away from it. You're not pushing it down. The emotion isn't going to like erupt because it has been ignored for so long. You become more peaceful. You become more centered. You become more balanced and you become more powerful because you're, you're not running from anything. So it makes so much sense. Um, yes. So I love all of the things that you're doing. If people want to contact you, where is the best place to go? I suppose the Instagram is <laughs> it seems like the easiest place. It's just my name. Um, okay. Yeah. So yeah. at Alison Mendaika, we'll put a link in yeah. the show notes and um, people can go there if they want to connect with you. And um, yeah, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Alison. Um, I've loved chatting with you and mm -hmm. thank you for the wonderful work you're doing. Yes, thank you as well. Thank you for your time.